And we're continuing on in our study of Bible preservation, the doctrine of the preservation of Scripture. And uh, I believe that last week we looked at uh, some of the biblical warnings. The warnings about not adding to or taking away from the Word of God. And uh, I've said many times before that, you know, there's more than one way that people can add to or take away from the Word of God. If you, if you tamper with the text of Scripture, uh, you, you, whether you're adding to or taking away or changing words, really when you're changing words, you're taking away and adding. You know, that's, then you're guilty of both crimes when you, when you, when you change words in Scripture. Um, but, uh, you know, even if we don't, like none of us are, nobody's going to ask us to interpret the Bible from the original language and make a new edition of Scripture or something like that. Uh, uh, but uh, how, how is it that we might be guilty of doing this, of adding to or taking away from it? Well, we can do it by the way that we live our life. If we, if we live in a way that denies the Word of God, then in effect, we're taking away from the Word of God. Or if we do something that the Bible commands us not to do, and then we try to justify it, we're attempting to add to it. And many people do that. There's a lot of people do that. Uh, just an example, there was a, there's a, I'm not going to mention the institution, uh, but there was a, a very famous uh, fundamentalist institution uh, in the states that about 10 or 12 years ago, one of their uh, staff members uh, wrote a book basically endorsing the idea of social drinking. That it was, you know, all right to have a, a, a glass of wine with your supper, and, and God doesn't condemn drinking in the Bible, and uh, we can do it to be social, and, you know, uh, there's as long as it doesn't involve drunkenness, then the Bible doesn't necessarily condemn it. And that's the, this guy wrote the book, and it was actually published by that university and uh, available in their bookstore until, until a few of the pastors who supported that information or supported that institution saw it and read it. And then, boy, there was a big uproar, and that book got pulled from the shelf. And, you know, unless you bought one of the first editions, you know, it didn't get published again. And that institution kind of backpedaled and has since taken a, look, taken a little bit stronger position. But the fact is that at least for a while, whether it was because that, that individual who wrote it, uh, that professor who wrote it, maybe he was very influential and they didn't want to upset him, or maybe the rest of them... Uh, basically agreed with him, but they had to they had to back off when it was going to cost them money, because a lot of a lot of churches were going to tell their students not to attend that that university any longer because it was endorsing social drinking. So in in that regard, that that university was attempting to add to the word of God. They were attempting to say that yeah, go ahead and you know instead of uh, you know. Uh, taking a firm stance against what the Bible says, not even to look on the wine, not even, you know, and, and saying that whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Uh, there's so many verses in the Bible that condemn social drinking, but they, they took a completely different view on it. And aside from the fact that he was, the, his, his whole premise and how he approached the, the subject was completely wrong. Uh, he said that every time the word wine is found in our English Bible, uh, that it's an alcoholic beverage. That's ridiculous. 
That's absolutely ridiculous. The word wine, when the King James Bible was translated, uh, was a very generic word. And it could have meant an alcoholic beverage, but more often it meant simply juice. Sometimes it meant something like a grape jam or preserves. Often it was even referring to the grapes as they still hung on the vine. And over and over in the Bible, we can read about clusters of wine in the Bible, you know, and a vineyard of wine. There's no vineyard, there's no wine bottles hanging from, hanging from, you know, great, great vines in a vineyard. It's grapes, but they still call it wine in the Bible because that word is so generic. And you just use the context to determine whether it's an alcoholic beverage or not. So when Noah got drunk and lay naked in a stupor, we know that that was alcoholic wine. But when Jesus turned the water into wine at the marriage supper in Cana, and then the, the governor of the feast came afterwards and said, Wow, you gave us the lousy wine before. The old vinegary tasting, not so good wine before, but now this wine is delicious. And uh, so obviously that's good wine. Uh, that's not, not some sort of uh, uh, um, wine that's been, that's been tainted with alcohol. So those are just different ways. They're different ways. And, and now these days it's not even things like a drinking wine. Now it's, it's really even things like moral behavior. And there are people that are attempting to justify all manner of fornication and, and, and say that it's all right because it's love. It's love. Well, it's not love, it's lust. Mm -hmm. And so that's, those are ways that we can add to or take away from the Word of God by the way that we live. And uh, so it, those biblical warnings are not just for the people employed by publishing companies who are trying to tamper with the text of Scripture. Those things can actually be in, well, uh, I think... Uh, particularly those are warnings for preachers and Bible teachers. Because when a pastor gets up and he stands and preaches in a church, he, he's wielding a great deal of influence. And if he said, no, this isn't what the Bible means, when that is what it means. Uh, or if he's changing the meaning, if he's dissuading people from the truth of the Bible, then he's doing exactly what those warnings uh, were intended uh, for. And so we need to be careful. And of course, we need to study the Bible. And that's, that's why Baptists have always believed that everybody should interpret the Bible for themselves. Uh, I, I, I'll do my best to explain the Bible, but ultimately, you have to decide what it means, and you, because that's the only way that you're going to live for it in honesty and sincerity and in truth. And uh, so, uh, preservation is an immensely important subject. And if you don't believe the Bible has been providentially preserved, perfectly, then you then you don't really believe there's no point to inspiration. If we say that the Bible was inspired of God, uh, but it has not been providentially preserved perfectly, then inspiration is meaningless. It's meaningless. And so we need to understand this too. Now let's look at some examples of, of uh, inspiration, or preservation, I mean, uh, in progress. Look if you would in... Uh, 2 Chronicles 34 in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Second Chronicles 34, we probably could have turned to Jeremiah 2, but uh, um, 
2 Chronicles 34 and verses 14. And uh, when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, uh, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. And Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shaphan. And Shaphan carried the book to the king and brought the king word back again, saying, All that was committed to thy servants, they do it. And uh, um, we're not going to read on the whole story there, but, uh, but of course, the, Josiah was, he, he, he had said he was going to live for the Lord, King Josiah. And even as a young man, his, his father was exceedingly wicked, uh, but uh, he was going to live for the Lord. And then the word of the Lord was found. This book was, was hidden away somewhere in the temple, in some, uh, maybe on the back of some dusty shelf. And... Uh, Probably because because Manasseh had commanded the word of God to be destroyed and he had polluted the temple of God, but this book was preserved and they read it to Josiah and it and it caused a revival to to go out in the land and uh, so so. The wicked king Manasseh, in, a, in attempting to establish a Baal worship in Judah, had uh, probably attempted to destroy many of the copies of the Word of God, but, but this was preserved. The Word of God was preserved. And um, look now in uh, chapter 36. Uh, we're not going to read uh, this 36 of uh, Jeremiah. This to me is almost a, a better example of, of preservation because uh, uh, in chapter 36, God commanded in, from verse 2 uh, to uh, Jeremiah, Take thee a roll of the book and write there all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel, against Judah, against all the nations. And uh, from the day that I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah even until this day. So God commanded Jeremiah that he was to write all words of the prophecy that God had given to him in a book. And then the book was delivered unto Zedekiah. Actually, it was Jehoiakim. And let me, let's see, the, uh, verse 20. And they went into the, king into the court, and they laid up the roll in the chamber of uh, um, Elishma, the scribe, and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehudi to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elishma, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudi read it in the ears of the king, and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the earth burning beside him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi read Three or four leaves he cut with a pen knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard these words. And nevertheless, Elnathan and Delia and Gemera uh, made intercession to the king that he would not burn the roll, but he would not hear them. And uh, then verse 27, and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll, and the words which Barak wrote in the mouth, at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll, and write it 
In it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim the king of Judah hath burned, and thou shalt say to Jehoiakim the king of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, Thou, hast, thou hast burned this roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein, saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land, and shall cause to cease from thence man and beast. And therefore, thus saith the Lord uh, of Jehoiakim king of Judah, He shall have none sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the, in the day to the heat and in the night to the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity. And I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judah all the evil that I pronounced against them. But they hearkened not. And then Jeremiah took another rule, gave it to Barak the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim king of Judah had burned in the fire, and there were added beside unto them many like words. So God told Jeremiah to, to write essentially what would have been the, the book of Jeremiah, uh, the whole prophecy of Jeremiah, because it concerned prophecies against Israel, the northern kingdom, against Judah, the southern kingdom, and against all the nations. And uh, there's a lengthy section uh, at the end of uh, Jeremiah of judgments against uh, various nations surrounding Israel because of their relationship and, and how they treated the nation of Israel. And uh, when, when those words were read to the king, he took out a knife, a penknife. Now, what a penknife was, was basically, you know, they wrote with quills. And so the quills would, would the tips would dull, and so they would have to snip off the end of it and make the quill sharp again. And that's what a quill knife was for. And he took that quill knife and he, he cut it all up and he threw it into the fire and he burned it. But uh, was it gone? No. God told Jeremiah to write it all. Everything that had been uh, burned before, God had him write it again, plus additional words. And those additional words concerned judgment upon Jehoiakim. It's interesting. Do you know what happened to Jehoiakim? Jehoiakim was the um, second oldest son of, of uh, Josiah. Uh, we don't know what happened to the oldest son. His name is mentioned, uh, but he never became king. And what happened to him? Maybe he died in the same battle when Josiah died. We don't know. But the youngest son, uh, after Josiah died, the youngest son, who was only maybe 17 or 18 years old at the time, he was, he was made king. But almost immediately, three months after he was made king, then uh, Pharaoh Necho of, of Egypt took him as a hostage to ensure the cooperation of Judah. And, uh, and he went down to Egypt. And then he went up to, to Carchemish and he fought a battle against the uh, uh, Assyrians and really against the Babylonians, and he lost. And uh, so then Babylon became in charge of the uh, land of Israel, and in all likelihood that youngest son in Egypt was killed. And uh, the, then, the so the that's when Jehoiakim became king. And his first thing that he did, uh, this was a time when, you know, Israel's economy or Judah's economy was, you know, pretty much destroyed. Uh, he went and built himself a palace. <laughs> he, he didn't want to live in the old rundown palaces that 
that all of the other kings of, Israel, of Judah had lived in. So uh, he forced the children of Israel to build him a palace, and he took it by taxing them. And it's sort of like, you know, King John and Robin Hood. And, and uh, he was very much hated by the people of Judah. And he rebelled against Egypt, and then he rebelled against Babylon. And uh, so Nebuchadnezzar decided he was going to march against Jerusalem. And while he was setting up his encampments to besiege Jerusalem, uh, the people took Jehoiakim, and basically they threw him off the wall. Splat. And uh, he, that's, where, that's where he lay. Nobody bothered uh, burying him. And uh, that's why it says that his dead body would lay out in the frost and would lay out in the heat of the sun. Uh, even a dead donkey they carry away in bed is what the Bible says. He didn't even get to the treatment that a dead, a dead donkey would receive. And uh, so then uh, after that, then uh, Zedekiah became king. So Jehoiakim, uh, actually Jehoiachin, and then Jehoiachin. Come in. So basically... Uh, those who add to those curses about adding to and taking away from the Word of God, that's what happened to Jehoiakim. That's what happened. And uh, so those are two uh, excellent examples. Uh, by the way, no, no descendant of Jehoiakim was his, his brother then was put on the throne, and that brother was taken to Babylon as a captive, and uh, he stayed a captive in, uh, in Babylon until the until the uh, the seventy years were ended, but his brother's sons never sat upon the throne of Israel, and instead the uh, the line went through a different son of David, and uh, so that they all they all experienced the judgment of God uh, for the uh, uh, the warnings that that we read last week. It's interesting when you when you look at the book of Luke and the book of Matthew, you see that the chronologies are different. The chronology of the Lord Jesus Christ is different in Matthew from the one. That's because in Matthew, it's showing that, that um, Joseph was a descendant of Jehoiachin, the one who was taken captive in Babylon. But God had said that no one of your seed will ever rule on the throne of Israel. Joseph was his seed. And Joseph was not only his seed. Had there been still a, a, a throne in Israel, he would have been the one to rule on it. Even though he was just a carpenter in Nazareth, he would have been the one to rule on it. Mary, she came from a different line of David, through not through Solomon, but through David's son Nathan. And so Jesus was physical descendant of David, but not a physical descendant of Solomon. And he, being the legal son, not the actual biological son, but the legal son of Joseph, he had the right of rule passed from Joseph to him. And so Jesus was the only one in the world that could have ever legally sat upon the throne of David. And after that, all the records were destroyed, and so nobody can prove it. Uh, but that's, uh, that's a, just an interesting thing, not necessarily to do with preservation. But, but uh, when, you, when you point that one out, when you point that one out to Jewish people, they're like, 
you know, but they can't argue it because you just have to look at those genealogies and uh, some of them, uh, they still have their own uh, genealogies pretty well preserved and they know, they know where they came from. So, uh, just a few observations and, and about preservation. Uh, I've, I've said this before, but the inspiration uh, without preservation really has no practical value for believers today. So even if you say, yes, I believe in the, in the divine inspiration of scriptures, but if you don't believe then in the providential preservation of scriptures, inspiration is meaningless. It might have meant something you know, when David wrote the Psalms, or when Matthew wrote his Gospel, or when Paul wrote the Epistles, when John wrote Revelation, but that was 2,000 years ago, and a lot has changed since then. So if you don't believe in providential preservation, inspiration is just some, it's just history, but it's not, it's not anything that mean, that, that we can uh, find value in today. And uh, so, <laughs> then basically the Word of God is meaningless. It's every man back to doing that which is right in his own eyes. And uh, so I don't understand why there are so many fundamentalists that don't believe in preservation. Because without preservation, inspiration is meaningless. Uh, second thing, God did use imperfect men to preserve scripture. Uh, just as he used imperfect men to write inspired scripture. Jesus didn't write any scripture, other than when Jesus wrote on the sand, you know, when they brought him the woman who was taken in adultery, and, and apparently when people looked at it, they, they were convicted in their own heart, and they left, beginning at the oldest to the youngest, but, but he was the only perfect one. Everybody else had sin. David certainly had sin. Moses had sin. Uh, Jeremiah had sin. We don't really know what some of the heroes in the Bible, you know, uh, what what their sin may have been. I mean, there's, you know, not anything that the Bible doesn't lay a complaint against Nehemiah or some of these other people in the Bible. But but they were all sinners. They they all had their sin. But God used them. He used imperfect men to write uh, inspired scripture. And uh, so why then is it a problem that? that God uses imperfect men in the preservation of Scripture. So, the concern should not be as to how God has preserved His Word, but the fact that He did preserve it. He has preserved it. And that Jesus confirmed the preservation of the Old Testament. Let's look in uh, Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, we're going to read the verse, verse 27, and uh, maybe for context, uh, let's start at verse 25. This is where Jesus is speaking to those two disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus, and they're all discouraged because Jesus has been crucified. And then said he unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then look in verse 44, and he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was still yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled where, uh, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So Jesus confirmed the preservation of scripture. He said all things. He didn't say some of them. 
all things that are written. Jesus believed in the inspiration of Scripture. It, you know, I, I went to an independent, fundamental Baptist uh, Bible college, uh, church-based Bible college uh, for graduate school. And uh, they did not believe in the preservation of Scripture at that institution. And I recall, uh, you know, the, the, one of the professors saying, if you, if you can't read the Bible in Greek, then you don't know what the Word of God says. And, and other, uh, others of the professors said, well, you know, uh, we can be confident in, our, in the Bible because at least 95% of it is sure. And, you know, I wasn't the only one when he said that, just looking and going, 95%. So what 5% needs to be, uh, have a big question mark? What 5% of it should we tell the people when we as pastors preach, don't, don't really lean on that, don't put your faith in those words? Uh, and, and, you know, 95%, I believe that I have 100% of the Bible. I believe that I have 100% of it, and I encourage every Christian to have full and complete confidence in the Word of God, uh, that God has uh, provided it and, and kept it. Now, you've got to have a Bible that's translated from the text that all Christian people used from the time of Christ until now. And if you use, if you use the, 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 a Bible that's translated from the critical text, which was invented in the 1880s, or, you know, any of the newer English versions, the Kyok Sungyong in Korean, uh, then you, you have a Bible that, that nobody had until the 18, late 1800s. There wasn't, a, there wasn't a Christian in the world who had, had a Bible that read like that prior to those times. And so I just believe that we should have the same Bible that Paul had. That we should have the same Bible that, uh, that uh, Christosom, who was a, a disciple of the Apostle John had. And uh, Polycarp, actually Polycarp was a disciple of John. Christosom may have been the disciple of Polycarp. And, you know, all of these great heroes of the faith, all of these Baptist people that, 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 that boldly stood for the Word of God uh, when, when people were saying that they needed to change what it said. Uh, so we can have confidence in that. Uh, it has been uh, variously estimated that 80 to 95 percent, and I think it's closer to 95 percent of existing Greek manuscripts are basically all in agreement. They're what is called the traditional types. That they're they're all copies of each other. You know, copies of copies of copies, and then uh, that which differed from those churches didn't use. They, they may have existed here and there, uh, but, but people didn't use them because they wanted the Bible that everybody has been, everybody had in use. So, uh, uh, really, in, in, uh, in the study of textual criticism, that is, when men try to decide uh, which parts of the Bible are genuine, uh, it was a man named B.B. Warfield, who was a professor of Bible at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary. Uh, he popularized the paradigm shift from belief in an infallible existing Bible to belief in some kind of inerrant, non-existing Bible. That the Bible was inerrant when it was originally given, but we don't know what was originally given. And they th think 
themselves to be some sort of detectives that uh, by their scholarship can, can manage to piece together what God originally, originally gave by inspiration. And uh, that we don't believe. We believe that God has preserved his words from the time that, that he gave them. And even, even, if, even if men like Jehoiakim would throw it into the fire, God would give it again. So that it would always be the same. It would always be pure. It will always be preserved. And uh, so that, uh, that's the doctrine of, of preservation. Do you, do, does anyone have any questions about that? Yes. Excuse me, lady. Okay. <laughs> what did he say right now about uh, preservation of the Bible? Can you repeat the last sentence? Last sentence, okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I believe that, that what God originally gave by inspiration, yeah. uh, God has preserved perfectly so that we have exactly what was originally gave, given. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is a translation of that. Yeah, what yeah. was originally given, of course, in the Old Testament was, was, was in Hebrew, except for a small bit that was in Aramaic. And uh, what was originally given in the New Testament was Koinite Greek. And it's been translated. And uh, this translation, this is, first of all, a translation of the correct text, not not the one that was invented in uh, 1888 or whatever. Uh, this is, this, this is uh, and it's a reliable, accurate translation of what was originally given. I don't know where it was that. If you would like, uh, we have we have some pamphlets and, and some books where this kind of thing is, is it's all in Korean and it's been uh, written by by good men who have a great deal of knowledge yeah. about these things. Yeah, I and I, I'd be glad to give you something yeah. like that if you'd like to. I take it yeah. and study it. You know what? The, the theory, I can find the internet, which is okay, yeah? Yeah. But I ask one, when you believe 100% percent, percent the Bible, this Bible. Yes. Um, don't misunderstand it. Don't get wrong, yeah, what I mean. Don't get me wrong. Um, I, I like you. I like so much to listen to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, please translate. Please, <laughs> please. <laughs> 번역된 성경이 많은데 100% 믿으신다는 것은 이 성경만 얘기하는 건지 번역된 모든 성경을 말씀하시는 건지 아, 이 성경을 음, 음, 얘기하시는 건지 아, 이 성경만 네, 그러니까 그, 그, 그러니까 그 본문에서 번역된 성경이 그러니까 영어로 번역된 성경은 그러니까 이, 이 성경밖에 없고 나머지 뭐 NIV나 이런 것들은 음. 그러니까 그 나중에 사람들이 만들어낸 본문에서 번역된 거 
Uh, I I'm reading P N T F the Bible, the book N T F oh. version, yeah. Okay. And uh, even though I understand exactly what I am reading N T F N A T N A T New Trans New, New Translation, translation yeah. and the N I V. So now now every Sunday I am reading P N T F version, yeah. Yeah. And a long time ago, I visited Eisenach in, in, in Germany, where Martin Luther translated the, the Bible from Latin, Latinish to German. Right. And the people King James Version Bible. Yes. So, at that time, uh, it became a lot of different uh, uh, Bible. Um, so, uh, after Martin Luther translated, there were a lot of Bible, yeah? You, yeah, you Martin, but Martin, just exactly as you yeah. said, Martin Luther, the Luther's translation was done from the Latin. And of course, the Latin was translated from the Greek yeah. and the Hebrew. And uh, so uh, there was uh, uh, another man by the name of Desiderius Erasmus, and he wasn't entirely happy with Luther's translation. And uh, because there were issues in the Latin, the Latin was incorrectly translated in some places, and so Erasmus made a, a collated Greek text. What he took is he took about ten or fifteen uh, Greek uh, uh, um, handwritten manuscripts, and he made he made a uh, then a Greek text from that, and uh, and he didn't actually do any translation, he just made the Greek text. And then he's, you know, his point was that it was better to translate from the Greek than it was from the Latin. And uh, his, then after him, a man by the name of Robert Stephanus, uh, he, he took, he kind of uh, made uh, uh, Erasmus's texts he, he sort of corrected some of the the uh, small errors in it, and then that became a printed text, and then that's what a lot of people use. That's what they use to make the Geneva Bible. Uh, that's what they use to make the Matthew Bible. That's what they use to make what was called the Great Bible. And uh, that's what Wycliffe um, used when he when he translated. Actually, maybe what is the main point about the death? Well, the main <laughs> the, the main point the yeah. main point is that you know you said you went to Germany yeah. and you you saw where Luther did that, but uh, you know nobody uses Luther's Bible anymore because it wasn't it wasn't all that uh, accurate of a translation. Yeah. Okay. I, I got it. And the King James version is it the, the same or the the King James the version was version, yeah. yeah the King James version was translated from that that text that ultimately goes back to Erasmus and Robert Stephanus, which was from the preserved Greek text. It was from you know not from the Latin. It was from the the preserved Greek text. Greek and Hebrew, yeah. Yes. Uh, it is only one reason. The, best, the, the, the most important reason is it to translate from Greek and Hebrew. Because, because that's what the Bible was originally, originally written in those languages. Yeah. And so that's, that's, that's the main source. 
So translating from that is going to be the be the best. Mm -hmm. But you know the the Latin Vulgate it had it had some big problems. Yeah, when I read the uh, English history at that time, Shakespeare's age age or uh, King 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 James times, yeah. Yeah. And at that time it was a uh, uh, there were a lot of uh, Professor or priest, they translated. They they translated the King James together, yeah? not only one. Mm. And uh, they are the same people, yeah. Uh, I, I'm not I'm not sure no. about that, no. but but we're out of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's a very good discussion. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, I'm uh, I'd like to consider. That again. Okay. Next Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Oh no, 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 I understand. I, you, I think you are so beautiful. I look so beautiful. Yeah. But I, I asked, I, I will ask the yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's have a word of prayer and we'll, uh, we'll get ready for the next service. Lord, we love thank you for uh, uh, bringing us uh, here today so that we can look to your word, consider it, and we know.